I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Diego Orea. Diego is the Deputy Director of Strategic Development at the Adrian Arsht Latin American Center of the Atlantic Council. Diego, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Grant, for inviting me for this opportunity and happy birthday. <laughs> thanks so much. So how did you originally become interested in foreign policy? I studied political science with a concentration in international affairs when, in the, when I was studying undergrad back in Caracas, Venezuela. And then I started work, working in, in, um, in a city called um, Sucre with um, marginalized population, etc. And due to my social and slash political activity, I had to leave my country in 2016 and I arrived to the U.S. And, and one of the only ways to remain connected to my roots and my country was to work on U.S.-Venezuela relations. And that was the spark, I would say. But then I started getting more interested in other Latin American realities as well and the role of foreign actors in the situation of my country. So that's why I'm here today speaking with you, I guess. So... Where are U.S.-Venezuelan relations right now, and, and what's going on in Venezuela that forced you to leave? I mean, it's a very complex situation that, to explain it, I would have to go back, I would say, 50 years. But I will start by saying that Venezuela has a, is a immense, rich country with the largest reserves of oil in the globe. Unfortunately, in the past, those who built the, the democratic institutions and the democracy as, as a system in Venezuela failed to redistribute the, the, the immense richness in the country and within all the regions and all the social classes of the country. This, this is a trend in Latin America that, that, repeat, that has repeated in Latin America. But in Venezuela, I would say though that, um, that conflict achieved its peak in, in 92 when, when a group of military wanted to take power by force. Um, that was Hugo Chavez. He later ran for office and won legitimately the elections. And from that moment, a political polarization, political violence created a, um, an environment of, of political persecution for the opposition to persecute and silence diverse voices with an immense, a huge historic uh, levels of corruption that, that led the country to one of the most, the largest humanitarian crisis in the globe with millions and millions of Venezuelans leaving the country. After, and, and I mean, I, I, I can say that I'm a victim of, of that conflict. And from my personal point of view, it's not only fault of, of those, the leftist government led by Chavez and then by, by Maduro, but it's about the political elite that couldn't manage the expectations and fulfill the needs of, of, of the people. So right now where we are at is a formerly pariah state led by Maduro, who has violated human rights, created the most, again, largest uh, humanitarian complex crisis in the, in the Western Hemisphere creating a lot of challenges in countries in the region like Colombia, Peru, uh, Ecuador for the, for the migration. 
the huge migration. But now in going back to slowly but steadily going back to the international system with a swift in political leadership in the region, leaning towards the left, all friends of Maduro are right now in power. Lula is one of them, but Petro Fernandez in Argentina too. And with a U.S. administration also trying to re-engage diplomatically with Venezuela, trying to push the country towards free and fair election and leverage some of the economic sanctions that were imposed in the last administration and in past administrations, trying to leverage that to promote democratic restoration in the country. I noticed recently that in the last couple of days, Colombia and Venezuela reached an agreement to strengthen investment protections between the two countries. And I, I gather it's sort of a building on some earlier trade agreements back in 2012. What do developments like that mean more broadly for both bilateral relationships between Venezuela and other countries in the region and also economically? For the country, what like how, how do you read those those types of developments on the economic side? So Venezuela and Colombia have shared the historically more, more vivid and dynamic border of Latin America and the Caribbean. Historically, the uh, the the border with more uh, with the most uh, trade between two countries, and that started its decline, I would say, in Chavez's time where Álvaro Uribe was the president of Colombia because of their ideological differences. And that was exacerbated when President Iván Duque in the, la in the past four years coincided with President Donald Trump prioritizing Venezuela, trying to promote with this theory of, of regime change. Iván Duque, Colombia's president, was kind of the Beacon, the leader of the of the fight against Venezuela democracy democratic erosion in the region in liaison with President Trump, so that um, accompanied by economic sanctions, divorced I would say the economic relationship between the two countries, leaving a huge gap and giving space for irregular groups and irregular economies to fill the gaps. Right, right now I think is is very important those renewed relationships because it prevents other global powers and irregular groups of leading the territories, leading the livelihoods of populations and communities that live around the border. So that the, the meaning of that is that the state, the structure of the state of international institutions will regain influence in the border. And that will prevent, again, these irregular groups that have historically used both borders to gain leverage away from where the state is taking place. And more broadly, regionally, again, looking at President Lula in Brazil, looking at the future of Argentina and what that means politically and economically, it pushes Maduro a little bit further from well-known violator of human rights, this rough state into a more democratic leftist country. While you brought up uh, Brazil, we might as well talk about the big news that happened in Brazil a few weeks ago, where the Brazilian seat of power in Brasilia was 
the center of a massive riot where people flooded into all three branches of government, the, the seats of all three branches of government. Uh, unfortunately, I think Western news or, or American news missed that this was kind of a, a longer term crisis that was happening with roadblocks around the country, with these camps that kind of had existed since the election. What do you make of that? And, you know, what do you think about what it says kind of about the broader region, given also the unrest happening in Peru? Oh, yeah, definitely. Grad, this, I would say, shocked the Western world what, what happened in Brazil. Let's start by saying that the difference between votes for Bolsonaro and Lula in the, in the elections were 2%. And we saw President Bolsonaro criticizing, eroding a trust around the electoral system, the, the, um, the technology, and, and creating this narrative that the electoral body couldn't be trusted. But also, as you mentioned, this is not the, the first and the only time that something like this has happened in the, in the hemisphere. We saw two years ago in the U.S. similar event. And one can say that this is not only a Western issue, this is a global issue happening. And, and maybe we stop a little bit in analyzing the similarities between January 6th and January in the U.S. and January 8th in Brasilia. But also it's important, I think, to, to touch on some of the differences. The first one I would say is this global trend of right-wing populism eroding democratic institutions. Again, creating distrust to democratic processes, in this case, the electoral system. I would also add in the similarities a huge amount of disinformation on both sides. And you can, you can see this information playing a role around the pandemic, but also around the election. So, and lastly, another similarity is the exacerbated polarization within national politics that, of course, are a prelude of this bigger clashes. But also, we have a lot of differences too. The first one, and I think for a U.S. audience, this illustrates a little bit better why in Brazil could be a little bit more challenging and threatening to democracy what happened, right? The first main difference is there is this sense and perception that the military and other security forces had a tacit support for these protesters that the military police and the federal, in the federal district, the protesters experienced no opposition or police repression for at least three, the three main hours, right? The second is, as you said, Grant, here in January 6th, the Congress was kind of the main space where rioters were doing their, their, their thing. But in Brazil, not only the Congress, but the federal Supreme Court and the presidential palace were also stormed. Another difference is that in the U.S., Congress was in session, but in Brazil, Congress was not in session. So the lives of Brazilian congressional leaders were not in danger at, the, at this moment. On the other side, the, in January 6th, the constitutional designated date for the certification of the votes was January 6th, and there was this sense that the rioters were united in attempting to block the official certification of the 2020 elections. And lastly, while President Trump was in Congress, kind of leading the, the conversations and the protests, Jair Bolsonaro was not present, uh, wasn't even in Brazil, was in Florida 
But again, what, what happened in Brazil will also affect the future and the priorities and the political space that President Lula could play and the impact. Because now President Lula will have to invest enormous domestic political capital to face some of the challenges that we can see, political polarization economically also. And the national agenda, the local agenda, domestic agenda will absorb resources that could otherwise have been directed toward international issues. When we see the political environment, we see that right-leaning parties are controlling 44, 44 and 49% of Chamber of Deputies and Senate respectively. But again, I, I, I think that Lula's seasoned experience as a negotiator and his more, more moderate position this third term will help him advance his foreign policy agenda. And maybe landing on, on Lula's foreign policy agenda, I would say that first, reinforce Latin America's integration and cohesion, portraying himself as a regional global leader, promoting integration. I'm, I'm thinking about Mercosur, economic integration, but also political integration in, in CELAC. I would also say that the Global South engagement and South engagement, connecting and engaging with other uh, developing regions such as Africa will be in, in his agenda for sure. Something to keep in mind is Brazil's engagement in BRICS and Russia's role there. Lula, I, I would say, would maintain his neutral stance on the war in Ukraine as long as he can. But he, given his multilateral ethos and also ambitions, I would say that that will be a challenging space. And then vis-a-vis -vis China, I would start by saying that Chinese companies invested a total of $5.9 billion in Brazil in 2001, more than three times the $2 billion reported in 2020 for the U.S. So the relationship with China will be key. And lastly, of course, Lula's green agenda will be likely the area with the most successful foreign policy repercussions. Um, thinking about partnerships with partnering with the current U.S. administration, but also with Europe. Let's remember that Spain will preside the economic the European Commission next year, and they have Latin America and promoting a more constructive engagement towards Latin America among their priorities. So Lula will be key for Spain to advance that agenda. If we go to Peru, I would say a transversal trend there is that, again, distrust on democracy as the way to solve their issues. Inequality, it needs to be in the top three main causes of issues across Latin America. Let's remember we're talking about one of the, the most unequal regions in the world, and Peru is not the exception there. In the context of Peru, you're also seeing some similar trends around distrust of democracy, distrust of public institutions, active uprisings, and so on. And we were comparing January 6th and January 8th. I'd love to hear whether, from your perspective, all of these movements that are happening in different countries, the U.S. included, are all related or whether these are, are sort of isolated dynamics that, that really are, are emerging because of the specific history and the specific political and economic circumstances. And it's a little bit of a coincidence. Like, to what extent should we be really understanding this as a global trend versus actually there's always 
you know, there's always internal challenges in different countries. And, you know, it's, it's a coincidence that we're looking at a January 6th and a January 8th and so on. Like, wh- how should we be interpreting it? I think it's a little bit of both. There is no doubt that what is the distrust in democracy, the effects of disinformation and hyperpolarization in this equation are global trends, right? It's happening everywhere. I would say that in some cases, the narratives within a country are influenced by foreign actors in a coordinated way with state and state actors, meaning, for example, we have been studying Russia's influence in Latin America and how Russia and the Maduro government or administration with other non-state actors have aligned narratives to, for example, promote anti-U.S. sentiment within Latin America and the Caribbean using the same phrases, coordinating the messaging. That's one of the, of the parts of the story. But on the other hand, so it definitely the local and domestic nuances play a, a huge role in this equation. But you asked me about trends and 63%, and I'm talking about across North, Central, and South America. So I'm talking here about the Americas. Only 63% of the public expressed support for democracy two years ago, right after the pandemics ended, the, the peak of the pandemic ended. I would also say that the COVID-19 19 super crisis that disrupted just everything, every single aspect of our lives, lives were disrupted, also exacerbated this distrust because we saw um, a peak in disinformation, in different narratives, and in a hyperpolarization. I think that there is a debate that is happening right now in the, across the globe. It's about the role of the social media platforms in navigating these new challenges that, that we are facing as, as, as humanity. So long story short, I think both there is a global trend, but also the political and local nuances play a, a key role in, in, in this new wave of democratic erosion or distrust in democracy by its citizens. So now those who, are, who, wants to, who want to promote democracy, I'm thinking about the transatlantic community, the patterns of, the, of democracy around Europe and the U.S. should be more intentional in rethinking the way the, the system, like if this system is responding to the needs of the population and how to engage with more younger democracies to help them navigate the challenges that globally we're facing. One of the trends that I've seen internationally is that things like inflation and the rising cost of living have toppled governments in like the UK and Italy. How much of this war in Ukraine slash COVID pandemic two for economic problem have caused this populist resentment in Peru, Brazil, and elsewhere? Or were these things already happening and this is just the latest issue at hand? Definitely, these things were already happening. What Russia invasions of Ukraine created was I would say less attention and resources from important countries like the U.S. and the European Union in other regions like Latin America and the Caribbean, like Africa, and more focused resources and attention in the conflict itself 
it makes sense from the from policy point of view, but it creates unintended challenging results in terms of the engagement with the region and with your allies in general. Right now, I would say, I would argue against that and would say, now is the moment to strengthen, to fortify relations with historical allies because the, the world is, change, is changing and now more than ever, a strong partnership between like-minded countries could face the new challenges that, that will arise. But also created new incentives for oil-rich and critical minerals-rich countries in the region because of the over-dependency of Europe of, of, of Russian gas and oil. In Latin America and the Caribbean are 63% of the critical minerals, critical minerals that are needed for the energy transformation of the world that will secure independence and energy security from Western countries, from Russia. And that seems to, that seems to have affected the way some private actors, private companies, and certain countries are seeing the region because, again, because of, the, of, the, of these resources. I would say, thinking about the history of the, of the world in the last 100 years, what if in this moment the developed countries see these opportunities in a different way with lessons learned from what has happened historically with oil-rich countries and the, the bad consequences for those states. Right now, there is a renewed opportunity for the U.S. and Europe to re-engage with a new framework with Latin America and the Caribbean, trying to leverage those resource-rich countries, but also making sure that in the governance system will benefit the communities that are surrounding these, these spaces, etc. So I would say, again, all these situations where having inequality, economic issues, exclusion of marginalized communities, indigenous communities, all this was, ha was happening before Russia and, and, and Ukraine is just another variable to the equation. So what do you think the U.S. role should be in this? You said like, yeah, we could dream about it being different, but what is it? Do we send Bolsonaro home? Do we invest in some way that we haven't in the past? What should we be doing? I ask myself that question every day because my work is to elevate it, to convince U.S. policymakers, but also European policymakers, private sector, that Latin America matters, the opportunities of engaging with Latin America. I would say spending more time trying to understand the benefits of engaging with Latin America. I think we are operating in the U.S. with the framework of the 80s. And we are in a completely new world. I can give you an example. For example, of course, among the U.S. priorities towards the region is to kind of outcompete China and China's involvement with their Belt and Road initiative in the region, etc. I would say before when the Cold War was happening, the typical reaction would have been, let's invest in security in Latin America to push Chinese investments here. But now the world changed and the U.S. doesn't have the resources to outcompete China. So why don't you help Latin American countries navigate in China's investment? Why don't you see the gaps? I would say putting more energy and political will and capital, investing in the region, trying to, we're talking a lot about nearshoring 
friendshoring. We have Mexico, we have Central America, we have so many economic opportunities, but also thinking about the top three issues in the U.S., that one of them is, of course, migration. By doing and re-engaging with the region, you will be tackling the root causes of migration, and then you can have a more comprehensive approach to migration, because then you are investing in those countries partnering with those countries and again, attacking, tackling the root causes of migration that are inequality, lack of access to education, violence, etc. So I'm sorry I didn't give you the silver bullet. I think it doesn't exist, but more attention, more political will, more resources. Zooming out a little bit for our last question, what is it like working on these issues from within a youth-based think tank. I mean, you talked a little bit about how a part of your role is around com- you know, convincing U.S. policymakers and, and European policymakers, but I assume it, it probably feels like you have to take a slightly different perspective or a different stance than if you were writing about you know, foreign policy issues from within Venezuela or something like that. So how has that changed either the things that you focus on or how you communicate issues by being sort of centered in a U.S.-based institution? That's a cool question, Zoe. It has changed radically. Before, I was more like an activist. I spoke, I dreamed like an activist. I, everything was about human rights, political persecution, etc. Here, I understood a little bit more that this is a market and the decision makers have competing priorities. The U.S., the country have different priorities. We are a nonpartisan or bipartisan organization. So that, uh, that also pushes you to find common ground spaces, ideas that would be, that would have common ground between two parties, between the two parties. But again, understanding the competing priorities and trying to find connections with their with interest is all about the interests of those who make decisions. So I have learned before going to a meeting to understand the demography of the constituency of a specific Congress member, understanding how can I connect that with the policy priorities we're pushing. And we have decided that are strategic to convince them. Another thing, Zoe, is maybe you have 10 priorities, but at the end of the day, you filter those priorities with a different lens when you work in a U.S.-based organization, because again, you want to make the most impact, the most impact possible. In order to do that, you need to take ideas to policymakers that will resonate with them and they have political space, resources to... Yeah, to consider it and to process those things. It also, I would say, provided me an uh, another added perspective towards what the role of the private sector in all these conversations. I would also say that working in a U.S. organization, not only constantly thinking about bipartisan spaces for change or to move policy, but also what would be the role and the interest of the private sector? How can we align all those interests to then push for a policy that will make impact in the region? It's not an easy task, I would say, but it's exciting. I'm passionate about it because I have found small spaces. I have, ide- I have been able to identify those small spaces where you can push policy. And I've been able to, with the team, of course, and there's 
leverage of the, the institutional capacity of my organization to push some constructive policies uh, towards the region. So with that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following either politically or culturally. Diego, why don't you kick us off? I have a comment on a movie I saw this weekend and I have read the, the book before. The movie's name is Dune. I have to say against all the odds, I enjoyed better the movie than the book. Different story was when I read the Harry Potter saga and then watched the movies, the experience was different, but this time the movie was so well done and it was, so I liked the movie better. That's my take. And what a good take it is. That is such a great movie and I'm excited about part two coming soon. Oh yes. Zoe, what are you following this week? So recently I've been doing a bit of a deep dive into different true crime podcasts, some of which are not so new, but they're new to me. And so I thought I'd highlight a couple of them. My my standard MO is to listen to podcasts while I'm in the ceramic studio. So if I'm listening to a lot of podcasts, it probably means I've been doing a lot of ceramics recently. But I'm listening right now to a podcast called To Live and Die in L.A., which is about uh, a missing woman. And I won't say much more than that, but very good. Um, has gotten a lot of uh, good accolades and press. So that might be one that folks are more familiar with. Also listened to one recently called Sweet Bobby, which is about a 10-year catfishing situation. If that doesn't make you intrigued, then I don't know what will. There's another one called Dirty John that I listened to about a con man. And then the last one that I listened to a while ago, and I may have actually mentioned on a past show, is a podcast called Missing on 9-11, which is about a woman who may or may not have faked her own death and and potentially ran away on 9-11. So anyway, if anybody is looking for something that scratches that itch of serial season one, hopefully some of these can help. As Diego mentioned, we're recording this on my birthday, so I thought I would share a few pieces of birthday wisdom. At work, speak up when something isn't going quite right, because oftentimes the people in charge want to do right by you and want the work to be done right, but don't have the bandwidth or aren't paying attention and won't always see the obstacles you're trying to overcome. The second piece of advice is fail fast. I feel like I was taught growing up that you should really always commit to stuff, buckle down, and just push through it if it isn't going exactly the way it should. But in real life, you have a lot of chances to start over, and it's better to figure out that something doesn't work for you and quit early so you can move on to something that might work better than to try to slog it out in a bad situation. My third piece of advice is to build community for yourself, whether that's in work or out of it, because there's a real epidemic of loneliness out there. And I know community for me has helped me get through tough times and helped lift me up in really good times. And my final piece of advice is get married. Of course, get married to someone you love at a time that works. But for me, Marriage has been nothing but a joy in my life. It's been busy. It's been hard, but I couldn't be where I am without my wife. 
So highly suggest marriage, 10 out of 10. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's NextGen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Diego at Diego Area. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by birthday money from your grandparents. They may not remember how old you are, but they do always remember to send a $20 check. So after you figure out how to cash a check in the 21st century, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.